Hey, it's Larry Sharp here still at Freedom Fest, trying to give you some good content, and we're talking right now to Dan Bishman, who is the executive director of the LP, Libertarian Party National. How you doing? I'm good. It's great to be on your show, Larry. I really of appreciate course. you having me. Yes. Look, what I'm concerned about, and you guys all know I'm always concerned about, and that is how does the message come across, right? How are we going to get more people to kind of get it, want to be involved, put that toe in the water, mm -hmm. right? Kind of understand who we are and what we're doing. I always want that. You're top now. Tell me, what are we doing at the top, the national level to make that happen? One of the things is that we have a realization that we haven't had in a long time, is that there is a message out there that reaches everybody about libertarianism. Okay. We have to understand that that message is available and that if we reach people with the right message, they become libertarians forever. If I can quote a little Larry Sharp to you, there's nobody more passionate than the converted. That's okay? true, but that I, guy's a jerk though. You should listen to him. Well, no. you know, I, I, every time I hear him speak, I take notes. Okay, good. So, to that end, one of the things we want to do is recognize the fact that we have an issue somewhere that hits somebody, hits them in the feels. So, as an example, you know, if I talk about licensing, right? That's an sure. easy thing to talk about. That's the right message to reach some people with. But some people who don't understand what licensing is about, right, it goes over their head. Exactly right. Sure. We have to have a way to have a conversation with people where they tell us what they want us to say to them. Recognizing that, and that's how we do better at messaging. So how are you doing that now? So one of the things that we're going to do as for the Libertarian Party is we're about to open up a members-only website. Gotcha. Where we're going to put members in there and we're going to ask them questions say, you tell us what are the issues that are important to you. So we can come back and talk to them and say, okay, now you, Larry, as a person who... Let's just hypothetically say, you're concerned with father's rights. Sure. You think that there's a problem in the way family courts are running, stuff like that. You have a grassroots organization in that issue already. I say, great, you're a member of the Libertarian Party. We know that this is a liberty issue. Can you tell us people that we can go out and bring the Libertarian message through that issue that's important to you? Because we have a good grassroots network right sure. now. We are not taking advantage of the things that are out there. And the other thing we have to understand... Well, hold on a second. You're actually telling me that if I'm the father's rights guy, right, and yep. I've got some, some group or whatever I have, if you reach out to me, I cannot reach out to them, and so now I'm bringing them all under one umbrella in theory. Right? Exactly we can right. even work together, partnerships, all those things. Exactly right. Because we are pretty good at bringing the libertarian message when we know our audience. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, though, we haven't taken the effort to understand who or what our audience is. Who better to tell us, I've got an audience built for you already, than our libertarians? Or our podcasters who are out sure. there who are talking about issues because most of their podcasters, right, that's their livelihood, you know. Yeah. As an example. Podcasters are awesome. Right. <laughs> yes, they are. Well, not only are they awesome in terms of what they do, but they're also not awesome in understanding that they are selling sure. to an audience. Absolutely. So they have an audience, they understand their audience, that they're successful. If we can partner with podcasters, that's a very important thing that we can do. So one sure. of the things the Libertarian Party has started doing is we have a referral program now okay. for podcasters. So you say, I want to be a podcaster, I want to be an affiliate of the Libertarian Party. We will ask you... Can you sell memberships? If I, you can sell membership for every membership you sell, I'm going to give you a 20% bonus on whatever they find. So gotcha. somebody signs up. It's for like 20... Amazon affiliates, something like that. Exactly right. If it works for Amazon, I want to be a little more successful than Amazon has been. However, yeah, Amazon's been pretty crappy, but it's fine. Yeah, exactly. That's fine. But if the Libertarian Party can achieve success like that, and the thing about it is, that's what we should be doing because sure. those are our passionate evangelists who are out there for us. Let's get those people involved. Let's sign people up. And they're issue-based people. So, you know, there's a podcast out there that is only focused on occupational licensing sure. for barbers. 
Sure. Just for barbers talking I know. about New York State. I'm from New York. All right. Yeah, exactly. Right? You got to drop $20,000 to get a license to braid hair in New York State. Right. I well, get you. Yeah. Big so, problem. So that thing about it, focusing on that sort of thing, but then talking about, you know, we have libertarians like Laura Epke who run proposed a new wonderful piece of legislation. They got passed in Nebraska, changing occupational licensing. Texas, right, they just changed their occupational licensing law for plumbers. All these things that we really can make a big difference for, recognizing who those people are and then having the messaging that reaches those people correctly. Because the worst thing that can happen is if you bring the wrong libertarian message because... Yeah, but hold on, you have something cool which I want to show, right? You don't mind if I, I play Please. a little bit, right? This is, a, this is something here. This is more generic messaging, though, right? This yep. isn't specialty messaging, right? This is more generic. Right. I mean, so, it's specialty if you think money is important in your life. But other than that... Well, yeah. But the, the funny thing is, you mentioning that, there are a lot of people who don't think that they think it is. Yep. Right? They think that money isn't that important, even though it is. Right. There are some who don't. But this is a bit more bold, right? This yep. is This is less targeted. Tell me about this type of messaging. So one of the things that we like about tariffs or taxes that Americans pay is that, first of all, it's truth. Okay. okay. Speaking the truth is always a good idea for a political party, for a political person. You look at the candidates who are the most popular right now, they generally say what they mean. Mm -hmm. The idea that tariffs as an issue is one that the Republicans and Democrats have flipped back and forth on. Absolutely. You can true. go back eight years ago yes. and the Democrats said tariffs yes. are so important. And Republicans yes. are like, oh my God, tariffs are the worst thing you can do to our economy. Mm -hmm. And now, position, opposition, right? Absolutely. So that's a great one where we can show that we are consistent and they're not. But the other thing about it, it's a place where we show, you know what? The parties are different from the people. And even though the parties have spent a lot of time to try to divide us into different groups, find wedges used to separate us, when we talk about what we, the people, represent, you know, the idea that we are being affected by government as a whole. Yeah, but hold so, on, what goes by sales here? With this specific one, yeah. if someone is not a Trump supporter, yeah. right now, right today, right. if they're not a Trump supporter, yeah. that works easily. Yeah. If you are a Trump supporter right now, yeah. that might make you angry. Right. You might see that as, oh, these guys all just hate Trump, they hate Trump, and that's why they're doing this, because they hate Trump. Right. Right? So, again, if it's eight years ago, it would be the opposite, right? Yep, exactly You'd be right. like, oh, the Obama you... people would hate us. Exactly, right? It's the exact yep. reverse, right? Yep. But, in, but in this case, because Trump is president now, right. they're going to see it that way. How, do you get over that? Do you care about that? Is there a problem with that or not? It, so, when we talk about messaging, we're talking about the audience. And so... To a certain extent, this is here to tweak a lot of Trump people. Sure. However, it's also here for a, a lot of people who have come up to us today, showing we have buttons as well, yep. saying, I'm so happy that you're talking about this mm. because I feel like the party has left me behind because I know for a long time, because tariffs really is about math. You know, the fundamental truth is we have a, a libertarian who is involved in canning tomatoes, okay? The, ta the tariffs on steel has caused cost him 25 cents more per can. That goes straight through to the consumer. Yes. Okay? He's not paying that. And the Chinese aren't paying it. one can is a lot. Exactly. That's a He's big not percentage. Paying it. Exactly. The Chinese aren't paying it. The person who buys the tomatoes is paying it. Those are Americans. Yes. And so tariffs are taxes on Americans. And when we talk about that simple numerical fact, everybody's like, oh, that's terrible. But how do you handle it when someone who now supports Trump yep. comes to you and goes, oh, you guys should say Trump. How do we handle that when we hear that? So we're saying I, I'm agreeing with you. Yeah, you're correct. Right. This what is shirt the, is yeah, accurate. Yeah. What is you. the messaging when a Trump person comes to us and they're correct. angry about it? Yes. We say we're actually not talking about the president there. We're talking about a consistent position that we had when Barack Obama was president. Mm -hmm. And you're right that there are people who sometimes are looking for a chance to be 
angry at sure. something. And one of the most important things we have to do then is libertarian jujitsu, mm -hmm. where we use their strength against them. Mm -hmm. And we can talk to them and say, look, you're a Trump supporter, right? You want there to be an economy that helps Americans. You want people to have more of their money to take home. You want them to spend less money maintaining mm -hmm. the infrastructure of government. So you're so actually going to give them respect. Exactly right. <laughs> yes. And, and that's yes. a critical thing about it. And that's something that you're right. Libertarians haven't done a great job yes. in terms of messaging. Absolutely. So if I can quote another one of my favorite libertarians, Nick Sarwark, mm -hmm. one of the, he gave the first talk I saw him give. He said to me, I want to start off with a basic premise. You as libertarians, you are spreading our message. When somebody tells you a political opinion, I don't care if you agree with it or if you disagree with it, the first thing you say should be, you might be right. There we go. When you start off with that, you're telling people that you've heard what they have to say mm -hmm. and that you're considering it. And we should recognize the fact, you know, there's this, uh, it's a terrible pun, and I, I hope I'm not going to tell the worst pun that's ever been on the sharp way. Go ahead. But it involves New York. Okay, so let's hope a, it is. All right, a wit <laughs> is walking past an alleyway in New York, and he sees two women on opposite side of the alleyway yelling at each other across the alley through the window, and he says, they will never agree because they are arguing from different premises. Ah, right. I like that. It's a no, terrible no, pun, no, but okay. I like it. And so a lot of times we have that problem. And you know, there's a thing, you know, you understand perfectly walk a mile in their shoes. Libertarians should recognize the fact that for a lot of us, our experiences have been very unique. The thing that sure. brought us to where they are. Agreed. But that's not just true for libertarians. It's true for everybody you talk to. Everybody has that. And so when we talk to people about libertarianism, we should be respectful of the journey that they've had. And there are times that the journey that people have had have made them think, you know, I, I need protection. Of course. I need safety. Right. And they have been taught that the government is the only way to get it. Sure. I had, uh, I tell a slightly longer story. So I used to be a special education teacher, uh, and I was teaching in Liberty Hill, Texas, when the David Koresh incident happened. For those who don't sure. know, yep. David Koresh was a cult leader. Yep. Waco, uh, Texas, right? Waco, Texas, right. Yep. And in the end, no, that ended terribly. Yes. He released many dead people. Many dead people. However, he released some of the children beforehand, and some of them came to the psychiatric hospital where I was working. I was working as a teacher at the time. And we had a cult deprogrammer come out there and talk to us, and he said, you don't understand what these kids are like, because they have been programmed to not hear anything that you say. Yes. They have been told that you are bad, you're going to try to trick yes. them into thinking the cult is bad, stuff like that. So, so I want you to imagine a scenario. Imagine that there's an arsonist, and when he sets fire to a house, he wants to do it while there are people inside. That's his thing. Right. So what he does is he dresses up like a police officer, and he knocks on the door. He says, I need to tell you there's a sniper in the area. Mm -hmm. And he's going to try to get you to trick you to come out of the house, and then he's going to shoot you. So no matter what happens, until another police officer comes by, don't come out of the house. Mm -hmm. Oh, and he might have a, a, a confederate, somebody working with him, mm -hmm. who will try to trick you to come out of the house, and then the sniper's going to shoot you. So just don't come out of the house. Then he goes behind the house and he lights it on fire. Now, if you see that, how do you get the person to come out of the house, right? If you go and you knock on the door and you say, hey, hey, your house is on fire, your house is on fire, come out. Of course they're not going to come right, out. Right, absolutely. And if you try to pull them out of the house, they're going to fight. They're going to fight. Yes, exactly they are. Right. Of course. Yes. So what you have to do is say, so, excuse me, I smell, I, I think it's smoke, but I don't, do you smell something that smells like smoke? And they'll be like, 
I mean, you know, maybe I smell smoke. Mm -hmm. And so there's this thing behind your house, and it's bright and it's hot. And I touch it, and it burned me. But <laughs> right. I don't know what it is. You come and they come in. Oh my God, the house is on fire! And then they'll come out. Sure. Yes. Republicans and Democrats have been burning down our collective house for the last hundred years. Still doing it. We are the ones who have to get people out of the fire, and we have to make sure that we don't make them go further in. Mm -hmm. You cannot ruin somebody's chance to come to liberty by bringing them the wrong message. People will tell you what the right message is if you're willing to listen to them. And that's the right questions. Exactly right. Yes. And so this is where we have to go, and this is what the Libertarian Party has to do, is we have to recognize that. And as a party, one of the things that I want to do as the executive director is that we're doing a lot of stuff in terms of finding out what people want to hear. Sure. And so we're doing that in obvious ways, where we're having surveys, but we're doing it in some subtle ways as well. If you go to the LP store right now, you might find some things for sale that aren't necessarily branded with Libertarian mm -hmm. things. The reason why is because if you buy a shirt that says tariffs or taxes, yep. even though it doesn't say Libertarian Party on it, I know that that's an issue to that you. That matters to you, of course. Exactly right. Yes, so absolutely. we can use merchandise as a way to sort of figuring out what so people So go want. buy the cool stuff at LP.org that you like. Exactly So we can right. now talk to you better. Yes. Exactly. Well, and that's what we should be doing. That's the sort of market research that industries do all the time. Sure. Amazon, right? That's my goal. I want to be a little I more know. successful than a little Amazon. More. I got you. Exactly. Amazon does a tremendous amount of market survey. They know what you look at, of they know what's relevant, do. stuff yes. like that. We can do things like that. I like that. This seems like a pretty good plan to me, and it's one of the best plans I've heard recently from the party, so I'm glad because I feel like the timing right now is so good for this, right? Yeah. You find a lot of people who are simply just surrendering. They're giving up. They're like, I I, I can't, and it just they're walking away. Yep. And we have to give them a place to walk to, and I think this is a great plan. Dad, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. What a pleasure, Larry. I'd love to be you. on the show. Thanks, guys. Hey, it's Larry Sharp here yet again at Freedom Fest, talking about a very tough issue here, and that is healthcare versus healthcare insurance and healthcare reform. Have Jeff Cantor here, a friend of mine for many years, working on a lot, a lot of fun issues. Tell me about what you're working on, please. Oh, certainly. Well, it's been really exciting because we're working in the healthcare space, and we've been kind of the uberization of it. We're trying to be very disruptive and empower everybody to become a cash patient. So the medical world's kind of evolved in the last so many decades to be a top-down mentality. Yep. Used to be in the old days, a doctor came to your house, and you paid. Yep. But then the next thing you know, you got to go to some place. I got an insurance card. I got a copay, and I've lost complete context any longer. So we're completely flipping it back to the way it was. I were allowing you to have the money. So when you go to the hospital, you've got the money. You don't have to sell so to us. You have an answer for health care insurance. I tell everybody, here's the key thing. Insurance is a great idea yep. for static objects. Yep. Like your home or your car. Yep. But your human being, you're evolved and your health yep. is changing. And you need something that's symbiotic. Yep. And insurance is too rigid of a mentality. So by just empowering you and allowing you have money to just make your own decisions, that's the solution right there. But it comes down what real quick, but it comes down to us taking it back. We can't look to some other entity, government, or company. So you're not actually saying that we need to get rid of this. You're saying here's an option for others. This is what I've been bringing up constantly when it comes to this issue, right? The problem in America right now is the average American doesn't know the difference between health care and health care insurance. Even the average politician uses them interchangeably. They're the same thing. Obamacare was not health care reform. It was health care insurance reform. And that and that. But it, it was that. It was only one thing. That's right. And people don't always get that. 
And what I've been trying to tell people is if we don't fix the healthcare system or how you interact with your doctor, which is what you're talking about, right? How do I interact with my healthcare professional, my nurse practitioner, my doctor, whoever that person is that I choose, if I don't change that, I'm changing nothing. That's right. It's moving the chairs around. It's like Exactly, right? It's a paint job on, and the car's still broken. Is what it is. That's what we keep doing. But you're giving a different answer, which I like because we're not just talking. I bring up often the idea that in New York City already, where I live, most of the best doctors have already stopped taking insurance. So what does that mean? If you want the best healthcare, you have to pay cash. So the wealthy get whatever they want, right? As they always do, which is why many wealthy people are totally fine with Obamacare or Medicare for all or whatever, because they're not going to use it anyway. That's right. So you, if you poor people want to have this terrible insurance, go ahead. We're going our way anyway. Good luck with that, right? And I see the, the change in people who are wealthy even to medical tourism, right? Going to other countries and getting stuff done. Uh, all different things, or, or in New York City, the best doctors. If you go to a a facility right now that does not take insurance, sorry, that does take insurance, mm -hmm. take, take insurance. There's two doctors and five administrators. That's right. And five administrators care more about you know, photocopying your card than you. They don't care about you at all. You're in the way because you're not the customer. Right. right. The customer is the government or is the insurance company. That's right. You're in the way. So your appointments for two o'clock. You get seen 3.45, and when you're done being seen, it's five minutes, maybe 10 minutes at max, and it always ends the same way, one of two things. It ends with a, prescri a prescription or a procedure, because that's how they get paid. Or a test. Oh, test, because that's how they get paid. That's right. So they're always billing, right? You're the way of billing. But now go the opposite way. Go to a doctor who takes no insurance. There's five doctors in that practice and two administrators reversed. If that. Exactly. They might only have one. That's right. Well, if, when you show up now, your appointment's at two, you're seeing latest 205. The doctor talks to you and asks questions like, how are you eating? How are you sleeping? What's your stress level and like? it's a long appointment. It's a long appointment. And it ends with the right thing for you because he's getting paid. That's right. She's getting paid by a credit card or a check. That's and what you're saying is you're allowing people who aren't wealthy to do that. That's right, because the difference is one, we're, we're a sickness care society. We're not healthcare. Yep. You're sick, and now we're going to take care of your sickness. So the doctor, like you're describing this insurance oriented, is thinking, boy, I sure hope Larry gets sick today. Yes. Because i got to make some money. <laughs> yes. And unless this guy comes to my place and he's not sick, I don't get any money coming. Yes. So the cash oriented doctor is often a subscription doctor in that I pay a monthly fee, yep. very low and reasonable, but now let's say I'm a doctor with several hundred patients and everyone's paying me monthly. Well, now do I need to be scrambling around worrying for people to get sick? I got the time to spend to give quality care. Yes. And so what the cash doctors always say is, you know what's so great? I get to be the doctor again yes, for a change. Yes, absolutely. This is why I went to school to help people. In fact, the incentive is that you're not sick. I'm gonna do out of, go out of my way to prevent your illness because if you don't come into my into my practice, I have time for other things. That's right. So I'm I'm actually hoping you're healthy. That's exactly Absolutely. right. So yes. now the, the incentives are correct. Yes. And then the other difference is that for the doctor, that they don't have to worry like you were saying with all those administrators. I'm more focused on running the business than I am about my, helping my patients. Right. And when I get liberated, I go from several thousand patients 
done under 500 patients. Yes. So I need to know everyone by name again. Yes. And I spend the time with them like I want to, and I'm prevented of the mentality. And what everyone's stunned by, and this when you said this only for the rich, the reality is that cash flow interdictors are cheaper. Yes. Cheaper. Yep. So in the city that I live in, there's a very famous hotel, uh, hotel a very famous hospital. Well, lo and behold, if you shop in the very same town, I can get an MRI for one fifth of the price. Yep, absolutely. I can get a test, a blood test done for one tenth of the price. Tell me the story. You said you were you were at a uh, a trade show. Tell me a story of some doctors who like how they came aboard. Well, it's interesting too the trepidation also because just like human nature, you always hate to give up the status quo. Sure. Even if it isn't so great. The, the, the alternative could be worse. It's a devil I know. So, exactly. Yep. Chinese proverb. So, anyway, I was at this uh, doctor's convention, and a, a number of liberated doctors got up and said, Hey, I used to take Medicare, I used to be in the VA, whatever they were doing, and now I do cash. And I love it, and I sleep at night, and I'm not suicidal anymore. And then when we were breaking, I talked to these other doctors that came in the audience and said, Well, when are you going to convert over? And a certain percentage said, Look, I can't do that. You know what? I'm just so acclimated to this. I hate it, but I'm used to it, and that's part of the problem. Yes. You've got to get that person to become that other adapter because we're never going to take the system back unless they convert. Agreed. And then a certain percentage, and I don't know if they were just doing it to not say the first thing, but to throw their spouse under the bus. We often say, "I would do it, but my spouse would kill." Me. Oh, right. Yes, of course. Yes, so I yes, can't yes. make the move, right. and I'll lay the blame onto them. Right. But the ones that made the move, and I have to say, I've never been to conventions, and I'm at a place like Freedom Fest where everybody's very excited here. But at that free market doctors event, you've never seen happier people than those doctors that finally got rid of that albatross and take the insurance. So, so how does someone find out more about what you're doing? Oh, you go to yourfreedomhub.com. Or, or docsandpowerpatients.com if you're a doctor, and you'll be able to find out all about it. There's a lot of other stuff too. We've got tools for you to be able to have more money to spend on out-of-pocket procedures, how to get medications overseas so you're not strangled by domestic pricing. So there's a lot of freedom if you look the other direction. We were joking before we did this interview that everyone looks in this direction for help, and if they suddenly look in this direction, they're like, oh my gosh, it's look all there. the whole market's over <laughs> here. What am I looking at this nonsense for? Yes. And that's what we all need to do is wake up. Absolutely. And realize that the solution's already here. Yes, and, and we don't have to abolish the old one. And that's the issue, you hear me all the time. I'm not about abolishing it. Keep the old system if you want, but let's allow for other options for the consumer to drive the choice. And the government option will either get better or become obsolete. That's right. Either one is the right answer as long as service is good for you and I, the individual, and we become the customer and we talk to our doctors ourselves. Thank you so much, Mom. Thanks, Larry. Okay. Appreciate being out. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Hey, it's Larry Sharp here yet again from Freedom Fest, trying to bring you some interesting content, talking about what's happening in the world today. I've got a very special guest here, Matt, known for a couple years now, Wolf from Students for Liberty. And what I want to talk about here is why in the world, when we hear all the time that all the millennials want is socialism, all the millennials want is socialism, they all love Bernie, how in the world can an organization, organization like yours be growing? Does it, does it seem to make logical sense? Please tell me. Yeah, so first, I think what we have to understand and the audience has to understand that millennials are not coherent in the worldview. When, because when they're saying they like socialism, they don't mean Venezuela, North Korean style government control. 
Got it. The definition of socialism is the means of productions on the hand of the government. Right. Meaning government controls all kinds of different businesses. Right. That's not what millennials want. Because if you ask them, do you want government to control the whole economy, they say no. Ah, they say no. Okay. So there's conflicting views of that, but what they do want is they want government to be more active than other generations. Ah, and I see. And it's specifically about um, relief of student debt and healthcare. So Got those it. are the topics that they want government to see. So the millennials care a lot about student debt. Healthcare doesn't, doesn't make sense to me either. They're young, right? They're healthy. Why do they care about healthcare? Because young people generally, and especially the people who call themselves socialists, they're very compassionate. They ah, want to help it. people. I see. They want to help that people, ev everyone, but they don't think that the free market or capitalism, which they hate as a term, right. so I try to avoid that term, um, they don't think that it helps the poor or the, the folks that cannot help themselves. And right. the United States healthcare system is and I'm a foreigner, obviously, mm -hmm. very screwed up. Sure. I lived in Sweden, I lived in the UK, where they have more nationalized systems, and they're often better than what you have here in the United States. They still have a lot of problems there. Sure, yes. But they just see that people are suffering, that you go to a hospital and then you're like in debt for the rest of your life. And they say like, that cannot be it. And we that's why they it. want socialism. And exactly. they think that's the answer. Yeah. They don't understand you. the role of government, how it has led healthcare to be like much more expensive, sure. much more inefficient. Sure. Same with education and so forth. So then, but, yeah, right. You said you don't like the, they don't like using the phrase capitalism, right? I never use that phrase either. Yeah. Uh, I don't use free market. I use consumer driven. Okay. Right. I always say it's consumer driven model. It's a consumer driven this, consumer that. So I, I've changed some of those words also. It's hard for the non. It's hard for the libertarian to not use those words though, because to a libertarian, capitalism sounds amazing. <laughs> free market sounds awesome. But to the non-libertarian, eh, not so much. So. Why would someone come to you if they're still thinking, well, no, since for liberty, that means capitalism, that means evil. Yes. How do, you, how do you bridge that gap? I think there are two main reasons. One being students realize, okay, I want to help the poor. I want to fight inequality. I don't want my grandparents not having money when they retire. Coming from a place of compassion, but then they're looking into this, okay, can actually a $40 trillion plan of Sanders or who have you can tackle that? And they're looking at it and they learn more about economics and can this actually achieve the goal? And they realize, no, ah, it cannot. I see. And then they might look at like other countries that have a good healthcare system, like Singapore, how they're doing this. And I'm not endorsing Singapore here, they have like many anti-libertarian policies. But they're looking at this and, and, and say like, okay, is government really the answer? Can a bureaucrat in DC actually make decisions that will help my life and my, my health? And they start to question it, and then they start looking at alternatives. And then often they come to us, because Got we have it. like I more see. of a uh, free market approach, how the market could help with that. That's one way. That's the students that ask more questions. Got it. But then, the other way is, what we're trying to do with Students for Liberties also, that we're not coming and saying like, look, we are libertarians, like we have the truth. And like you have to read this book and like slap them over the head. For <laughs> sure, sure. We're coming from a place of mutual respect. Yes, absolutely. Because our people understand that other folks with different opinions, they want to, as much as us, want to help poor people. Sure. They want to help other folks, but they have different means of accomplishing it. So let's talk in a respectful and dignified way. What are your solutions? What are our solutions? And our people are like happen to be have radical, cool ideas of free markets, sure. but they also happen to be nice human beings. Got it. So it's the idea of being able to have the conversation. Yeah, and reaching out. So you think I shouldn't just hit someone over the head with like maybe like a Mises economic book? That's not a good idea? Okay, good. Yeah. So, yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. Like, Sometimes, yeah. true, yes. And Mises is fantastic. But, well, yeah. it's funny when you say that, right? Very often when people ask me about the liberty movement in general, they, ask, they say, Larry, do you, isn't that guy a bad guy? Isn't that person a bad person? 
And what I say is no, I think every voice is important. And for some people, some people hear a more radical voice, some people won't. Some people hear a more aggressive voice, some people won't, right? Yeah. My audience is different than other audiences, right? So I, I'm glad that you have that idea where you can mix and match and do different types of people. And we're very tribal, it goes against our nature. Yes. And I say we, not as like people who happen to believe in, in, in liberty a lot and in one using the free market or consumer-driven policy. Sure, right, and yes. It is, for every kind of ideology, it's more comfortable in staying in our own niche and with people that already agree with us. Yes. And that's what happens in Congress. That happens what's ha on campus. But we have to go out there and change minds and have to do it from a place of compassion because yes. if you just yell at people, they won't listen to There's you. There's an old saying I talk about all the time, right? No one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Yes. Right? So when they care, you care I care about you, I, I care. All right, I'll listen at least. Yeah. And you may not even agree, but my biggest thing is your tribalism. When it's tribalism, it becomes us versus them. And then them isn't even a person. Not even, they're not yeah. even a human being. They're something else, right? So I can just completely push them away. I can ignore them. They don't matter. But once I have the conversation, even if I disagree, you're still a person. Yes. You're still human. You can have a conversation. I, I bring up all the time. When I was running for office last year, many times I'd go into a room and I'd ask the question, how many people here are registered Republicans? Hands will go up. How many registered Democrats? Hands will go up. How many registered something else? Hands will go up. They'd all be in the same room and not want to kill each other. Yeah. Right? So it can actually work. I, I completely agree. Respect is a critical piece. So tell me, if someone wants to help you guys out or get more involved, what do they do? Sure. So students can check out studentsforliberty.org and apply for our programs. We have a lot of different videos about why the minimum wage will probably harm the poor more than it will help them. Or will um, artificial intelligence take our jobs? So they can check it out at Learn Liberty on YouTube. We have over 50 million views of our, our videos there. You said Learn Liberty on YouTube. Yeah, that's, gotcha. that's okay. also part of what we have. Studentsforliberty.org, or if they want to come to a conference where you have spoken as well, mm -hmm. it's libertycon.com. It takes place from the 3rd to the 5th of April 2020 in Washington, D.C., in the belly of the beast. But there will be people from the left and the right yes. and the crazy libertarians all will be there and they will be trying to come to a better understanding how we can make the world a better place and we can do it over beer or coffee and have a good time while doing it. So awesome. thank you for talking to me about thank this. Thank you so much, my friend. I appreciate it. Thanks for what you do. Thank you, guys. Bye. Hey, Larry Sharp here, Freedom Fest yet again with the talented Boomer Shannon, the man who is an awesome libertarian strategist who has had great wins and great successes and does all kind of cool things, but sadly isn't as smart or as good looking as I am. However, he's still amazing even though. How you doing? I don't even know what to say about that. <laughs> I know, that was the point. <laughs> I was trying to make you speechless. <laughs> He's trying and to throw me off. Okay, I love it. Right, that was right, the whole right, point. Right. Yes. Well, I, I, I will concede that you are more handsome than I am. Oh, there we go. See? Uh, exactly. but, but at the end of the day, I've got a win under my belt. That's true. You have a W. I don't. That's good. <laughs> good point. I stand corrected. Very true. Yes. Well, and that's, that's, that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about a little bit. Is that, sure. You know, is that, you know um, I think that, that, that you and I have a, 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 a difference in approach for electoral success for libertarians. Okay. Um, you know, I'm really interested in trying to kind of build the bench, as it were. Sure. Right, you know what I mean? I want to see people volunteering for planning commissions. Yes. And, and reaching out and getting getting elected as dog catcher at all these lower, lesser offices. Right. Um, and, and, and then you can move up into into being on city council and moving to mayor. And, and much like uh, Jeff Hewitt, you know, going from, from mayor of a small town of 8,500 people. I agree. I mean, he's Jeff now is supervisor. Successful. He's now supervisor to 2.5 million people. Yes. In a huge libertarian electoral win. I, I cannot in any way, shape, or form deny any of that. Jeff Hewitt's a rock star, and his path is awesome. Yeah. 
my piece I bring up often though is, while Jeff Hewitt's awesome, Jeff Hewitt doesn't have the same pull or same influence outside the party or his area, right? Even though Gary Johnson didn't do as well, right? Sure. Particularly that totally, I mean, obviously he didn't. People still know him, right? Even though I lost my election, right? But in New York State, I'm the face of the Libertarian Party right now, yeah. right? In my entire state. Even the, very though I the very handsome face. The very handsome face, face. yes, exactly, yes, of the Libertarian Party, right? The reason why you see me very often focus on the top of the ticket yeah. is because I do recognize you're correct. The odds of victory are lower. That's sure. true. Yeah. But the odds of press are a whole lot higher. Yeah. And if we yeah, have yeah. the right people at the top of the ticket, the press they get can trickle down to the bottom of the ticket. And what you, if you've been watching, you see what I'm doing now. Now that I have more name recognition in New York State, I'm now the guy going out and raising money for the bottom of the ticket now. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I'm raising money for the, the city council. I'm raising money for the, the local person running the Congress. I'm raising money for the, the down ticket now, the down line. But I can only do that because I got the press at the top of the ticket. So I think both are valuable, but I think if yeah. you just do down ticket, what happens is, again, if you're in a libertarian world, you love Jeff Hewitt. But if sure. you're in New York State, you'd have no idea who he is. Yeah. Right? But people in California do know who I am. Yeah. Right? In fact, people ask me to go out there and raise money for them. I raised, I raised money for the California party. You saw me do it. You were there. Yep. I took money out of your pocket that night. I took money out of his pocket, too. Also true. Yes. <laughs> also true. Yes. Too centrally. Yeah, yes. Too centrally. That's it was, correct. It was, it was in a fundraiser, it just was. so we're clear. Absolutely, no, yes. no, no theft. That's no correct. Theft here. No theft. There was consent. <laughs> but yes. But that's exactly right. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. I think that's my that's my reason for focusing well, on top of the ticket and, for that reason. And when you say it like that, you know, because you are a very, you know, I do a lot of fundraising for the party as well. But sure. you're yeah. a very talented fundraiser. I mean, I've seen you work a room uh, more times than I care to admit. We go to a lot of things. <laughs> yes. That's exactly right. Yes. Yes. Maybe um, too many sometimes. But yes. so, but when you when you put it like that, you know what I mean. You know, yeah, I can understand. You know, it's, to beat Cuomo in New York, you're gonna have to raise thirty million dollars at least, right? I mean, I know that he spent even more than that. I believe he had twelve in his pocket. Twelve in his pocket. Yes, when it was over. Was he oh, oh, uh, when it was over. Yes. So he spent he raised had so much. Left. He had twelve left. That's how much money he had. He had twelve <laughs> remaining. Wow. Yes. So okay, yes. Maybe, maybe thirty million is conservative. Then. <laughs> exactly. Um, yes. But you know my. So, but but if you're using it to help support other candidates on those down because because fundraising is the hardest thing, you know. When, when, yes. I, when, I, when I meet with a candidate and they say, "Hey, look, I really want to run for local office. What do I do?" I say, "Well, the first thing you got to do is raise some money." Yep. And it's hard for them because most people don't go out and ask for money. Hey, look, I, I've, I've got this, this 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 imaginary thing that I'm running for. This is office that I may not win. Hey, Larry, can I have five thousand dollars? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what yeah. I mean? So it's like so it's really hard for them to be able to get over that. Hump. Now there are really generous donors in the party. There are really generous donors in our area that have been able to support us. Sure. But it's incredibly difficult, even for a candidate who has a lot of skills and, and, and a lot of ego, right, to be able sure. to go up and do those things. It's difficult. So if you're going to be kind of, you know, uh, uh, dying on that sword, as it were, and going right. out and fundraising for them, I think that's a really, really good use of your time. Well, there's another thing, though, that I think I get why you would say, you know, what you would say, because our party or our movement culture is not that. Our culture is, I'm running top of the ticket because I think I'm awesome and I'm gonna go out and win and when I lose, I simply quit and walk away. Yeah. It's rare that the guy at the top of the ticket then after the loss goes, okay, now how can I help? And, and, and I, I'm and, trying to be that example for others to follow. I thought you were going to be that. Did you? I was wrong. There we go, see? But hence, hence yes. I, I'm standing here. Yes, right? there we go. So yes. um, I, I wanted to make sure that that, that, that 
I want to make sure that you're supported in the future. Obviously, the Sharp Way is going to be a fantastic radio show. I'm really happy to be here today. Yep. Thank um, and you. I wanted to go ahead and, and, and show my support by 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 putting on the swag here. Ah, oh, there we go. See. We put on the swag. You got these really cool. Yes. The Sharp Way shirts. You guys can support Larry Sharp on Patreon. Yes, you can. Turn this on really quick here. Patreon.com slash Sharpway, $9, bucks. you get a shirt. There you go. And you get a shirt. The first show is on the 24th of July. 24th is our, we're it's, hoping to start 24th. It's the day before my birthday, Look so it'll, it'll be a great birthday it's gift for me. It's your birthday gift, absolutely. I appreciate that, Thank Larry. You, my friend. Always good, brother. Good seeing you. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Hey, it's Larry Sharp at Freedom Fest yet again, trying to give you some very interesting ideas on how to solve some problems for our future. I talk about this all the time. It isn't just about the liberty movement, it's about real solutions for real problems. I'm here with Jason from Clint, right? Larry. He's got an idea and a company that's talking about how we can actually pay using a card and pay with gold, making gold a currency. We see a credit card, right? Debit. Debit. There's no credit involved Sorry. in anything. We don't lend out any of our clients gold right. or money. Credit bad. Yeah, Debit yeah. good. Debit okay. is good. Yeah, good. yeah. Good. Thanks for bringing me on the show, Larry. Of course, yeah. So I'm, I'm a little bit... A little bit confused in a way, right? Yeah. I think of gold being money as literally I'm, I'm passing my gold coins out, yeah. or I'm buying shares in a gold sure. something. That's how I sure. think of gold. Sure you do. This is different, right? Yeah. Please. Well, listen, gold, gold's the oldest store of wealth. You know, I came across this because in the last financial crisis in 07, 08, there I am watching the television, seeing Lehman Brothers go down, yep. and seeing um, Northern Rock in, North, in England going down. People queuing outside the bank and uh, worried about getting their money back. And right. that was a real shock to me. And I think like a lot of people, suddenly there was a realization that actually a bank is not a safe deposit of funds. Right. You know? In fact, it's the opposite. You put your money in the bank, it's lent out to people, it's put at risk. Sure. And... Um, well, I think you also find, particularly our immigrant community, right? When, yeah. when immigrants come to America, yeah. many of them are also afraid of banks also. For yeah. the same reason. They, they've seen it happen in their That's countries, right. right? That's right. They've watched their own countries collapse. Yes. And they come here and they're afraid of banks. It's much more visceral for them, but yes. we've even seen it in our own countries, so here in the US and in London as well. So um, that, of course, then starts you thinking about other things as well that are related to that. Like, what about money itself? Like, I'm sure a, a dollar used to buy me four chocolate bars, now it only buys me one, yes. and it's half the size. That's correct, you yes. Know? And then they come up yes. with all these complicated words to describe things, that that's called yes. shrinkflation and so on. And you learn a little bit about money, you think, okay, so how can we protect ourselves, protect ourselves from inflation? And um, back then, I learned very quickly that gold was the ultimate store of value. You told me, when we talked earlier, yeah. that actually gold has actually increasing value. Yeah, well, listen. Compared to the dollar, which has just yeah. obviously collapsed. I, I like to think of, uh, about the other way, really. I see gold as the constant, the golden, golden constant. constant, the golden constant. It still okay. buys you what it did 2,000 years ago. Okay. If you had an ounce of gold 2,000 years, years ago in Rome, it would have bought you a very nice Roman toga. And today, gold's worth over $1,400. So I'm sure that would buy you a nice outfit. It still buys you what it did 2,000 years ago. Right. 2000 later. Now the dollar, the pound, in fact all paper currencies have lost, the dollar and the pound have lost eight, over 80% of their purchasing power in my lifetime. Right. You know, it's just becoming worthless over time. So, well, am, I, am I just going to have to take my dollars and buy a bunch of gold now? Well, that's what people have done in the past. They've, they've done one of two things. They've put their dollars at risk by investing it in stock markets, sure. any kind of stuff to just maintain its purchasing power, never sure. mind grow it. Gold is something that people have put their money in to retain their purchasing power uh, and not put it at risk. But it's stuck in a vault. Right. And as a friend said to me once, Jace, 
the gold stuck in the vault. I can't even buy a coffee with it. Right. And that was like a red rag to a bull to a guy who'd been working in tech thinking, well, why not? Why can't we do that? You know, I'd been used to trying to think of new ways to do things the previous 15 years with all this digital economy. So that's so what we did. explain the card to me. So I this the card. I just so, walk in, I use that card. Well, let's, right from the, let's go right from the beginning, you know. So you download the app, the Glint app from the uh, app store. Um, and you can open an account within like three minutes. You three just minutes, put in your okay. name and your address and you open an account. And uh, you can then transfer some funds into this using like an ACH transfer or a debit card transfer. And um, once the... Once the um, once the money's in your account, yeah. uh, by the way, we, we send you a, a Glint card. So um, here's a here's a Glint Mastercard, and um, you can just use your US dollars you've just transferred into your Glint account if you want. But that's not the whole purpose of Glint. That's not our unique selling point. The point is that on the app, I can now go into there and I can buy as little as one cent's worth of gold. So you buy gold with the app. Yeah, and okay. I could, or I could buy, if I had enough funds in my account, I could buy millions of dollars worth of coins. But you're buying it, we're democratizing it in a way everybody can get to buy just enough for what they can afford, and you're getting it at the latest interchange rate, you're getting it at the mid-market rate. We only charge half a percent because, you know, we're trying to make this as fair as possible for everybody. And that goal, once you've bought it, goes into your gold account inside your gold account. Your, your so you're you're actually buying now the gold. The gold is in a vault for you now. It is in a vault. It's in Switzerland, in Zurich, run by a company called Brinks, the world's biggest independent sure. vaulting company. And now with my card, I can just select on here, and I can say which of my currencies, my US dollars or my gold, do I want to link my card to? Now I always just have it linked to gold. So now I can just leave my phone at home if I want. Um, and every time I go into a shop, I use this MasterCard. It's accepted anywhere in the world. Right. So, you know, I've used this in Tokyo, in Mumbai, in California, in London, here in Las Vegas, in uh, Los Angeles, New York, and uh, in Boulder, where we've opened our office. And they don't, they don't, they just see MasterCard. They take the card, they accept it. And you can see on here that I just did that this morning at the press juicery, yeah. and I bought my juice with 0.2 grams of gold. Got it. So okay. anywhere in the world, we've made it money, you can use everywhere. Now what happens now, since your money's now in gold, yeah. what happens when currencies collapse? What happens when there's a crisis? What happens when 2008 yeah. happens again? Well, gen Sorry. listen, I can't tell the future. If I could, I'd be a trillionaire. But sure. generally speaking, when things collapse, when paper money collapse, people move to gold anyway and the price of gold goes up. Really what you're seeing is the confidence in those paper currencies get decimated and, and then the, the value of the gold is going up. So the, the value of gold is going up at the moment, so it's often the barometer about what's going on in the world. We live in pretty uncertain times. But really it's about, with Glint, we want to give everyone the same opportunity to prosper. We think, as I said, gold's the first step in giving right. a reliable form of gold money. And they've now got a choice. The first so, time ever they've got a choice. If I hear what you're saying, this is basically up to the bank account for me. Yeah. And it can help protect me against inflation. Yeah. It can help me get gold if I want gold. If I'm a hardcore libertarian, I want to be at the gold standard. Yes. I can do that if you're, I want you're to. Right? Personal gold standard. Personal gold standard if I want to. Yeah. But also can protect me in cases of crash. God forbid there's another financial crisis. There will be one eventually. Yeah, yeah. I don't know when. I'm not, I don't know either. But yeah, I know yeah. there will be one. Yeah. That's how it works. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's what we're doing here. Yeah, that's what we're doing. How does someone find out? Get involved. What do they do? So listen, we launched in Europe. Uh, February last year, we've, we've onboarded tens of thousands of clients. We're super excited to be coming here to the US. We've already got, I think, about 100 testers out there using the product today. I have been now for a good few weeks. 
and we're going to be launching any day now. So okay. watch the space. We've got a website, uh, glintpay.com. Glintpay.com. Glint, G-L-I-N-T-P-A-Y.com, glintpay.com. And on there you can see there's a um, register your interest. And so you put your details in there. You'll be the first person to know when Glint launches, sometime in the next few weeks. Awesome. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you very much for being here me on the show. Thank great. you. Great. Thank you. So do John Lott, right? Right. Nice yes. to meet you. Good to see you. And tell me, where are you from? I. Uh, and I met with, your organization. Right. Yeah. Well, the, I'm with the Crime Prevention Research Center. We're a group of academics from around the country that do research on guns and crime type issues. Now, so crime prevention, clearly you are all about gun control because gun control always works. Right. right. No, guns should be banned. <laughs> yes. We're joking, obviously. <laughs> we are joking completely. Yes, the, the issue that I hear often is whenever crime happens, the first thing people think about is ban the weapon. Right, right? well, it's I mean, that's understandable. Thing. They see something bad that happens with the gun, and if you only could have gotten rid of the gun, then the bad thing wouldn't have happened. The problem is is that people don't see all the times that people use guns to stop bad things from happening. And a lot of that's understandable. I mean, the news media pretty much only covers bad things that happen with guns. I mean, on our website at crimeresearch.org, we have dozens of cases in just the last few years where police have said that permit holders, concealed carry permit holders, have stopped mass public shootings. What is other, that right? Yeah, it's just my word. It's the fact that they said that many people would have died. Some of these are very dramatic cases, but they only seem to get local media coverage on these things. Uh, what I one, think is funny here is, right, when people will tell me often, They'll say, Larry, but when it comes to things like mass shootings and such, if you don't, if you don't support gun control, you're mean or cruel in some way. And my response has often been, no, not at all. Actually, you're crueler than I am. Because you don't care if there's a mass killing, you just care what weapon is used. You just right. want less people to die. I want less mass shootings. Right. I want to deal with the violence that that is itself. And, and that. Right, well there are lots of ways you can kill people. I guess what I would say though is that guns do make it easier to kill people, sure. but they also make it easier to protect people and prevent sure. bad things from happening. The question is kind of what's the net impact. There's kind of this perception that the United States is has more mass public shootings than the rest of the world, and that's simply not right. We just finished a study looking at all the mass public shootings in the world from 1998 through 2017. Right. And what we find is that the United States accounts for less than 1% of the world's mass public shooters. We make about 4.6% of the world population. So we're well below the average. Even there are many countries in Europe, from Russia and France and Norway and Finland and places like that, that on a per capita basis have much higher rates than we do. But here's more important things, and that is when we have these attacks in the United States, they keep on occurring time after time in places where people are banned from having guns. Sure. These killers may be crazy in some sense, but they're not stupid. They want to go to those this places where they can kill yes. as many people as possible. And they know if they go to places where people aren't allowed to defend themselves, they're able to kill more people. Now, people That's say, where they well, go to churches, or they go to movie theaters sometimes, right. or they go to schools. schools. Right. Sure. 
So, I mean, even if you have an armed guard at a place, they have an almost impossible task. Because sure. if you have somebody who's identifiable as a guard... They shoot they, them first. Exactly. Yeah. And those guys have, are heroes. I mean, yes. first of all, it's a very boring job. Yes. And secondly, it's an incredibly difficult job yep. for the reason that you mentioned there. And the, the advantage of having concealed carry uh, is that you take away that strategic advantage that the killer has. It's funny you bring this up. I was in the Marine Corps for many years. Right. We have a saying, the only good scout's a dead scout. Right, so the guy out there who gets killed, that's the face of the scout. He's a, the job of the guy who's going to be there with the gun is, is to get killed. Right. And that's not a good job to have. So why would I want that guy to die? Right. right. What I was bring up also is, <clears throat> people talk about school shootings. And I said, remember something, that a school shooting, while it is murder, it's at its core public suicide. Right, at its core, school shootings are public suicide. Yeah, no, so well, I've got a guy coming out here shooting shootings people. Generally. Yes. They want to go and commit suicide, but yep. they want to go and commit suicide in a way that's going to get them attention so the Correct. people know that they're here. And, and, and they know that the more people they kill, the more attention that they can get. And so if you can take away the perception that they have, that they think they can go and kill lots of people, mm -hmm. you can reduce their incentive for doing this thing. You look at the Sandy Hook killer, for example. Um, he had done a study of mass public shootings over 40 years. He, according to police there, he had he wanted to kill more people than the Norway killer had killed mm -hmm. because he figured if he could do that, he could get even more media attention worldwide. I, I can't prove this, but one of the reasons why I think he went after the elementary school there was that he thought that it would get more attention killing young kids yep. than it would killing some other type of victim that was there. No, I don't doubt it, it at all. <coughs> I, I, it makes total sense. But I want to go to another piece if I could. You mentioned sure. the idea of you know, guns stopping crime. Right. Right. The thing I bring up often is, is I live in New York City. And when I'm in an event, I'll often ask people, I'll say, excuse me, anybody here own a firearm? It's very rare people do. New York City is very hard on a firearm. Most people are anti-gun. So almost the entire room will be saying no, or maybe one person might raise their hand. And I'll say, actually, you all own guns. And they say, what? I said, yeah, but the cops are holding them for you. I see. So whenever you have a problem, what do you do? You call your guns. Right, yeah. And people in uniforms come with guns and solve your problem. Right, but so the problem you is it do takes that. eight minutes. That is correct. Well, but I mean, that itself is proof that guns do stop do right. stop other problems, right? People with guns do come when you call them. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're somebody like Michael Bloomberg, you have the guns with you. It's That's correct. armed bodyguards Absolutely. to go around with you all the time. Uh, my research has convinced me of a couple things. One of the things is, is that the people who benefit the most from owning guns are the people most likely to be victims of violent crime. Absolutely true. Yes. And that overwhelmingly tends to be poor blacks who live in high crime urban yep. areas. And old, it, older. Oh, right. Well, older. the other group of people that benefit the most are basically people relatively weaker physically. Correct. And that's women and the elderly. Yep. And uh, and so you know, it'd be great if the police were there all the time. But as we were just talking about, the police themselves understand that they virtually always arrive on the crime scene after the crimes occurred. And that's one of the reasons why police are probably one of the strongest groups in the country in support of private ownership of guns. I mean, you look at surveys of police officers, they're very strongly supporting private ownership of guns. Well, I'll, I'll look at the areas that I deal with also in New York City, right? You have poor communities, black and brown communities, and whenever there is somebody getting beat up or robbed or mugged, it's always an, an older person of color, right? Usually a woman, 
but sometimes a man, and it's some thug that comes well, by and says, criminals aren't Let me stupid, grab. they go after easy victims. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the, the, the firearm itself becomes an equalizer. Right. And I said, all the time, if just all you have to have is one, one elderly man or one elderly woman draw down on a thug, change everything. Yeah. Change everything. Well, I mean, so you're, the criminals are almost always young men, and you go and attack an elderly person, there's a large strength difference yes. that exists there, much more than if they attack somebody else their own age. Absolutely. And so the presence of a gun represents a much bigger relative change in their ability to go and defend themselves. What I hear from people is, but Larry, I don't want to own a gun. I hear that often. But they don't have to. And that's the fact my that point. other people do that's raises the risk. The idea Your that they example don't know. of yes. somebody pulling a gun, if that gets publicity, yep. then it, then they know at least some people out there. Absolutely. That's the advantage of concealed carry. Uh, you know, outside of New York and uh, California, you have about 9% of the adult population with concealed carry permits in the country. You know, you go to a mall, you go to a restaurant, you go, you know, in Las Vegas here, you walk around even in the building here, it's very likely that there's people nearby you that have uh, permit concealed handguns. And, um, uh, you know, but um, so, how, so how do people learn more about what you're doing so that they can kind of see stats that they would that, that right? Well, that's what about. we do. We do stats basically. So how what, do they do what, that? Well, I mean, we then go to our website. They can sign up for our email list. Tell them what our website is. Website it's crimeresearch.org, and our email list that we send out every couple of weeks uh, has our research that the different researchers do. But, you know, one thing I wanted to talk about just briefly is just the gun control measures, how they specifically disarm the most vulnerable people yes. in our society. So, you're in Washington, D.C., let's say, and you have background checks on private transfers of guns. It costs $125 to privately transfer a gun. That may not stop you or I from being able to go and get a gun, but a poor person Yes. who lives in a high-crime urban area, that may make the difference. Now, just give you an idea how they purposely set these things up. So let's say you and I are in D.C., and I'm going to sell you four guns. I'm selling you just to you. You think one background check, it's one guy getting a gun. What they do is they have it set up so that there has to be a separate background check on each gun. So that's 500 bucks. Right. I mean, it's like they kind of go out of their way just to make it difficult. Yes. You're, you look at two states that are next to each other. And I haven't even bought the gun. Right, yeah. That's 500 bucks and I haven't bought the gun yet. And you haven't even paid the fee for yeah. the license for the All gun. Right, yes, absolutely. And uh, But you look at places like Illinois and Indiana. In Illinois, in order to get a concealed carry permit, it's $450. In neighboring Indiana, up until recently, it's been $47. They've increased it. They've reduced it to zero now. 450 bucks is someone's monthly, I mean, weekly take-home pay. Right. But it's like they kind of go through and check out everything they can make it difficult. So there's no training facilities in Chicago. Um, you have to go outside yep. the city to do it. You're banned from having even permit-concealed handguns on public transportation there. Yep. And, uh, New York State's worse. New York State, they want you to have an NRA certification. Right. But to do that, you have to hold the gun. But you physically can't hold the gun in New York State unless you have a license. Right. So that means you literally have to leave the state to get the certification to come back into the state to see if you can get your gun license. Right. Well, I mean, that, it even harder. Yeah. Yes. It's if you hold a firearm in New York State, you're a felon, and not just a felon, you're a violent felon because you held it. Right. There could there could be nothing in it. You could have done nothing with it. I just look at this cool thing. Off the jail I go. Right. Yes. So, but. 
you know, there's so many of these rules. I'll give you one other example on background checks. I mean, everybody wants to stop bad people from getting guns, sure. but we often hear the claim that there are three and a half million dangerous prohibited people that have been stopped from buying guns because of background checks. That's simply false. What they should say is there have been three and a half million initial denials, and that almost all of those are mistakes. It's one thing to stop a felon from buying a gun, it's another thing to stop somebody simply because they have a name similar to a felon from sure. buying a gun. The problem is the mistakes overwhelmingly are against minorities. Sure. And and the reason is is because when you buy a gun, you fill out the 4473, you're putting your name, your social security number, your address, your birthday, your race, your eye color. You think you're giving them all this information, they're using it. They use just part of it. They use roughly phonetically similar names and similar birthdays. Wow. And the problem is, is that people tend to have names similar to others sure. in their racial groups. Hispanics have names similar to their Hispanics. Blacks tend to have names similar to other blacks. 30% of black males in the United States are legally prohibited from owning a gun because of past criminal history. Yep. Whose names are their names most likely to be confused with? Yep. L good, law-abiding black males who want to go and buy a gun to protect themselves and their families. Yep. There's no reason the government should be making these mistakes. Private companies do criminal background checks on employees all sure. the time. If they had an error rate that was 100, oh, the they'd be sued rate, every day. They'd be sued out every of existence. Day. Yep. But if you go and say the federal government should have to meet the same standards for doing background checks that the federal government requires that private companies right, have yes. to do to do background checks, they will scream poison pills. Right. They will say, you know, you're being unreasonable here. Right. I have had a few times where I go up and be talking to gun control people or Democrats and I'll say, well, you know, maybe we should just let companies, when they do background checks, use just phonetically similar names when they do it. So, oh, no, you can't right, do can't that. Do that, right. that will discriminate against minorities. Right. And I say, yeah, that's a good point. I understand. You know, I'm glad you brought that up. And... Maybe we should apply that to guns. Yes. You know, and you get a deer in the headlight type look if they know what they're talking about on that, or you know, so, so the conversation go, ends. How do we then make this better? Right. I found that what I do is I usually talk about the idea of it being an equalizer. I talk about the idea of it being affecting minorities more. I talk about how it affects our veteran community more, right? Because many of them, that's my percentage, I'm a veteran, many of my percentage, they're more apt to have things like PTSD and things of that sort, right? So they're often banned. Well, you got the government, if you go and get a veteran getting help on your finances, you are classified as, you know, having a mental illness. Yes. It's <laughs> so... You get a percentage of disability and then that's it. Right. Yes, absolutely. And, yes. And, and you're on the do not buy list. So I, I bring that up often. Is there a certain thing that you're doing to try to make this easier or better? Right. Well, I mean, one of the things I concentrate on is about how it's the most vulnerable people in our society yes. who are hurt as a result of the gun control laws that we have. And... Uh, you know, I, I got into this to try to make people safer, to sure. try to reduce violence. Uh, I'm not a fan of guns per se. I don't even say. own a firearm. I live in New York yeah. City. Be right. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, why, I can understand paying the fees and everything else and the hassle going through and doing that. It's a huge hassle, and they only give you a certain window from when you go to your home to the range. And if you get caught in traffic during that time and they catch you, I'm going to jail. I'm a violent, I'm a violent fellow. Right. Well, so, I mean... Yeah. Who knows whether the Supreme Court will eventually hear that case. They've kind of changed the rules a Let's little bit. Let's hope they do. 
but uh, hopefully the Supreme Court thinks they've been too cute by half. Well, John, I want to say thank you for coming by. Sure. I appreciate it so much. No, I appreciate Good it. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Here at Freedom Fest in Vegas, I'm lucky to have CJ here from Deplorable Choir. They are actually, hey. yes, they are actually uh, stay-at-home moms who put songs on the internet. So tell me why you're here. You know what? I came here, Freedom Fest, Freedom. Um, I came to meet with some people. Um, I basically, I just we we we've been promoting our tour that's coming up. We went on a 15 city tour um, in the fall or in the spring, and we're going on one in the fall. But we're just stay-at-home moms that sing. Honestly, it's kind of goofy about Trump on the internet. So um, you're singing about Trump on the internet. Yeah, that's pretty okay. much. Is that raising awareness? Is that raising money? What is it doing? Do you know, this didn't start as anything we put any thought into. Okay. Like when I say stay at home moms, we're literally like just fun and goofy. And we, we, our mantra is the party with the most fun wins. So we just thought one day, why don't we put some goofy videos on the internet and just have fun? We didn't think people would watch them. Right. They started watching, fans started watching them, Trump lovers started watching them, trolls who hate Trump started watching them. I like to think everybody has a good time while they're watching them, okay. whether they're loving or hating on us. Um, and it kind of just started rolling from there. I don't think, I don't connect in my head, I don't connect Trump with stay-at-home moms. How do you make that happen? How do you, how do you square that circle? You know, for us, I think the... You know, well, obviously we're big supporters. I mean, when Hillary Clinton came out and said, you know, the women only vote Trump because their husbands told them to, we took like personal offense to that. Did your husband tell you to? No, I there told go. my husband Good. what okay. to do. Come okay. on. Okay, got it. Good. I said, okay. <laughs> but that was like one of our, that was like our first video, one of our first videos we did. Hillary Clinton, why are you still here? And it so was this viral. more of an anti-Hillary thing or a pro-Trump thing? No, it was like totally. We were just trying to have fun with our support with Trump because we feel like women get degraded all the time by the media for supporting Trump, and we wanted to show that we are fun-loving, goofy women who are not afraid to show support for our president. And we did. I mean, there wasn't like a goal in mind. It was more just like have a good time show that we're strong women and that we don't have to fear what people are going to say about us for coming out with our support and that's actually our message no, no, I, I get it completely I'm trying to get at the core though right yeah why does a group of people who are stay-at-home moms decide Trump's my guy versus anybody else right even not even Hillary even even towards uh, Justin Amash is a Republican also uh, or against uh, another Democrat like uh, Kamala Harris or Joe Biden or why why is it Trump is what I'm trying to get why is um, that the connection? Right? I as I'm an outsider. I don't see the connection. Yeah, well you know, I like I, I guess I speak for like moms that sit at home and watch Real Housewives. So it's gonna ah, be a lot okay. less of a like a deep explanation, but I love that he was a businessman. I love that he was ah, gotcha. political. Okay, I love that gotcha. you know he wanted he was promising to drain the swamp. I love that he you know for me I feel like I've stayed pretty indifferent to politics until Benghazi. And my ears peaked when I heard YouTube video over and over again, and I was like, wait a second, no, no, no. And then I just started kind of getting involved, and when he came down, uh, a bit, another big trigger for me was uh, when he hired General Flynn as the National Security Advisor and the whole Russian collusion. It was just like so many things that I felt like, you know, if I was writing a reality show, this is the stuff I would put out there, and it didn't make sense to me, and I was like, they're up to something. 
you've got this political world's got writers. You're writing a horrible script because it's way too predictable. I mean, like. So, so why do you like, come to Freedom Fest? Then? Has two steps. Uh, very robust, meetings, promoting our tour. Um, How are you raising money for the tour? Are people buying? Are buying into it? Are they giving you money, donating? How are you? I mean, it costs money obviously to go on tour, right? Yeah, but people buy tickets. Just buying tickets, we, is it? We did the the a 15 city tour in the uh, in the spring, and it wasn't us that put it on. We were like contracted out. Okay. So, so how does someone watching right now who out, wants to come see it? We what got they have some to do? publicity and sold out some shows. And I love it. It's fun. You don't need you don't you need to what? push the show. People, you know what? I'm giving oh, you a shot to push you know the show. What? Well, well, it's in the planning stages right now, but you can ah, go to okay. the deplorablechoir.com and see go. dates. That's our website. But um, the the big idea for the tour and for what we do too is to send a message that people want conservative entertainment. They felt silence. We at goofy moms at home felt like we couldn't even go out in public and say we supported Trump without be, being fearful of what people were going to think of us. So our message with the tour is look at all these people that want. Conservative, conservative representation mm -hmm. in entertainment. There's none. And so, us by doing this, hopefully sends a message to other closet conservatives that I know exist, or libertarians, that feel like they cannot, that feel silenced, and then they'll be inspired to say, I do what I want. I do what I want. How can you beat that? How can you possibly beat that? Where do we have to go again to here again? Is it deplorablechoir.com? Deplorablechoir.com. The deplorablechoir.com. The deplorablechoir.com. Bingo. CJ, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. Good seeing you. Bye. I Hey, it's Larry Sharp here at Freedom Fest yet again. Soon I'll be doing another event coming up here, which I will actually also do live again. So sitting here with someone who's gonna, you're telling me that you you actually want to make sure that our laws are actually how do I say this? You want to make sure that our laws are actually better, clearer fairer and more accountable. Is that kind of right? Well, I'm from some downsized DC, so I'd like them to be fewer as well. Fewer, right, thank you. I yes. would like them to spend less money. I would like them to regulate you in fewer ways. Okay. And so uh, we came up with uh, three bills to address the growth of government, it's almost like a lever, okay. to really put uh, a lever on the process so that uh, the people would have more say in the process. When people hear downsize all the time, particularly if someone comes from the left, right? Particularly if they come from the left, when they hear downsized government, they assume if we're not going to regulate, we're going to be unsafe. If we're not going to have a lot of laws, it's going to be more dangerous, right? Without government oversight, then who? It, it can be very scary for someone who either comes from the left or is on the left or has friends on the left. This can be scary talk. How do we get that person to not be afraid of this? Well, I think the fact is, uh, I, I'm not the least bit anti-government. In fact, I'm very pro-government. I don't think we have enough government. We have the wrong kind of government. Ah, okay. The government that exists now points guns at people to get yep. things done. It says, you're going to do this, or you're going to suffer the penalty of law. There's a whole host of ways to govern things. People belong to churches. They probably have a government there. They, uh, there's a board that runs it, and a pastor yep. that's ahead of the, the church, and everybody assembles and follows the rules there. And it's true of, of private organizations and charities and businesses. Uh, there's a number of different ways to get things done, and we can be very creative, and as a result, reduce the cost and burden uh, of things, make, make it more affordable, uh, create more opportunity. If we don't have this heavy hand of government making a one-size-fits-all approach, pretending that we're all the same people with all the same needs, and that this is the only way to get things done. 
you know, I find this often when I speak to the left and the right, I will often find that sometimes, or many times, the outcomes are actually we agree upon. Yes. Right? We agree upon the outcome. Mm -hmm. It's the way to get there that we will often fight about. Right? And again, I'm, I'm talking from the left here. I'm from New York City. Right. So a lot of my friends are Democrats, yes. people I know are I'm on the left. And many of them think in their hearts, we can't do this because the only way to have what I want is, of course, through government force. Without that, people so, will just So here's a novel stuff. proposal. What if you didn't, it never had to worry ever again about a Republican regulating your life? Yeah, if I'm a Democrat, I'd be happy about that. Exactly. Sure. And so that's the opportunity that, that we're, that's available. When we say downsize, what we're talking about is taking that power out of Washington, D.C., and maybe even out of Albany, and putting it in, in local communities, letting individuals make those decisions, letting them choose the type of governance that they want at every level. So, you know, you can choose your own regulators. You can choose your own security. Uh, there's just so many different ways to do things. And even if it was just at the neighborhood level that that was being determined, if you didn't like how it was in a neighborhood, you could move to another neighborhood. But if you don't like how it's being done by the Republicans in Washington, D.C., where do you go? Right. Right. I get it. So this is also the idea of actually localizing government even more also, right? Yes. The smaller you make the federal government, it's just a downsize DC. Am DC. I saying that right? Yep. Downsize. Tell, tell me where, where they can get more information on that. Downsizedc.org. Easy day. Right. Excellent. So if we do that, that means more local government has to pick up the slack in that case. More local government and more people doing things together. You know, that's I, one of the things, I've had a chance to talk to people on the left too, and I know that they're beginning to speak the language of the deficits, of the ways that things yes. that government is not addressing a problem. There's problem X or Y, and they say there are these gaps, and how do we fill in the gap? And they're finding that they're able to organize and get stuff done and be fairly effective uh, and get around the various bureaucratic things. They find that it doesn't always pay off to spend all that time lobbying when instead they could be doing something about the problem now. And it turns out that they are able to do stuff about it now. I see that often, right? I see often that people spend a whole lot of time trying to get government to do something, time, money, energy, is so they're taking that same time, money, and energy and actually fixing the problem. Right. Actually making it done, right? Right. If I built something that would fix the problem, I wouldn't have to try to get government to fix the problem. No. I could just build it and fix it. Right. So this is, is this part of your message or no? It is part of our message. Um, but in this particular case, we're, we're focused on some bills to try to, to increase the leverage that the American people have over Congress. You told me you have three separate bills, right? Yes. Tell me what they are, please. Uh, we have the Read the Bills Act, the Write the Laws Act, and the One Subject at a Time Act. Okay, tell and me about it, each one. Okay, the Read the Bills Act says that every bill must be read by Congress. You want to vote yes? Let's say, Larry, you go off to Congress and you want to vote yes. You want to tax me, you want to regulate, whatever it is you want to do. If you're going to vote yes, before you do it, you have to sign an affidavit saying you've read the entire bill for yourself or you sat and listened to a literal word-for-word -word in order reading of the bill. Because the Read the Bills Act says that a quorum, which the Constitution defines as 50% plus one of the members, has to sit and listen to a literal word-for-word -word reading of the bill before it can be uh, voted on. Why? Because the mind will procure what the hiney will endure. Ah, uh, yes. And those bills will get a lot shorter if they yes. have to sit through them. Won't I like they? that. I like that. But we also okay. said the bill has to be posted online for seven days. Okay. Seven days so you can read it, I can read it, Watchdog groups that you favor uh, can keep an eye on it for you. I like the radio watch talk shows. I like that. Yeah. Whatever. And Anybody a radio talk show host, that may not be good. Depends on the talk show host. It does. It does. <laughs> yes, but they can yes. read the bill as well right. and let you know what is in the contents of it because a lot of times stuff gets inserted at the last minute or bills get rushed through right before they go home for a recess. And we wanted to put, a, put the brakes on that process. I like that. Now, is that something that we should be pushing locally also? 
I think it should be everywhere. Now, most city councils have a two-reading requirement. Yep. Uh, Congress did it one time, too. Oh, I didn't know that. But they basically have waived it, and they write Got their it. own rules. Congress is the most anarchic institution in the land. So I mean, tell, me about the, tell me about the tell me about the the right right the laws acts dealing with the fact that there are regulators, unelected people in the bureaucracies, all these alphabet soup agencies yes. who write rules that are binding on you. 100%. It's one thing if they're writing a rule that's binding on the government, right? We're gonna do we're gonna carry out uh, mission X that's been given to us, and we're going to do it in the following ways. Sure. That's completely appropriate. Every institution has that kind of process. Right. But we, the people, have a Congress that's supposed to represent us. We could have called this the No Legislation Without Representation Act if we wanted to. Ah, uh, yes, sure. We're saying that every regulation has to go to Congress, and Congress has to vote on it first. We have that problem in New York, big problem. And we have it where we have so many commissions, committees, to where they're all of a sudden out there, and they're now making rules that affect New Yorkers, and then New Yorkers get upset, and they write their congressman and say, hey, this is wrong, fix it, and the Congress says, I can't do anything, right? because I, it's a regulator, I didn't do it. And then the governor says, or Governor Cuomo says, well, I, I'm not on that commission. So basically, these people are able to do whatever they want, and I think one of the most unfair ones we have now in New York State is... In New York State, I think it's if you have three or four DUIs in the past 20 years, and this is retroactive, by the way, then you lose your license forever. And it doesn't matter if you're five years clean, 10 years clean, right? They give you, they, the New York State says, if you want your license back, if you want to do it right, you must you know, go five years with a suspension, and you must be clean for X number of years. And then people go through the process and get their lives back on in order. They don't drink anymore. 10 years, five years clean, and New York State says, you still will never get your license back. And they might say, well, that's fine. Move to New Jersey. Right. It doesn't work because it's reciprocity. So New Jersey goes, oh, we got revoked. New Jersey won't give you a license. Right. So now someone cannot have license forever, and they have no recourse, to your point. They can't write their congressman. They can't ask the governor for help. Right. They can't do anything. Right? Even What happens if, if they have a family, if they have their responsibilities? They can't work. They, they have, now they have to go on a dole. We have to pay for them now. Right. Nothing but bad, and it's another example of there's no, what you say, legislation about representation from you right. said? Yeah. Exactly. And, and I don't think most people realize there are more regulations issued out every year than Congress passes laws. Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, you can't ignore this. This is a big part. You know, Nancy Pelosi famously said about Obamacare, you know, she was asked what was in it. She said, we're going to have to... I remember. We're going to have to wait to find out, right? Yes. She had a very, you know, first we're going to have to read it. And, and what, what, in, what she was really talking about wasn't the, the length of the bill, which was monstrous, or how fast it was passed, which was so rapid that no member of Congress read it. What, it, what she was really talking about was it created over 100 different boards, committees, yes. and agencies, and they didn't know who was going to be on those yet, yep. and what their rules were going to be when they were done. All that stuff was going to happen in the years to follow. Absolutely. And so how, how can the American people assess, how can many member of Congress, who has a fiduciary responsibility, frankly, how can they assess what it is that they're signing on our behalf? And so that's what the Right the Laws Act is. So give me the third one. The One Subject at a Time Act is H.R. 2240. It's introduced in the House right now by Russ Fulcher of uh, Indy, uh, Idaho, excuse me. And, and, and what, uh, we had 28 in the last session. Uh, we're down because we lost our sponsors. So we're rebuilding. Uh, the One Subject at a Time Act says that every bill has to have a clear, descriptive title, 
limited to one topic. I love that. And everything in the bill must comport with that. Got it. So I can't just throw a writer on to change this or a writer on to change that. Yeah, so I was raised on Schoolhouse Rock. Maybe you were too, I remember, right? Today yep. I am just, still just a bill, That's right? That's right, I remember, Okay, yes. so in that, that, that was a farce. That's not how it actually works. Ideas that have no chance, no hope, no prayer of getting anywhere get attached to sure-to-pass bills sure. all the time. Yep. And that's how they get done. Jack Abramoff basically said if you wanted to sneak something in, uh, the way that he did his corrupt method, uh, in which is addressed by both the Read the Bills Act and the One Subject at a Time Act combined, is you take a gigantic bill, you insert it in that little space where nobody can see it, and you put it in an arcane language that nobody can really understand and read. Yes. Right? So if you take away people's ability to read and understand what's actually in the bill, and if you take away if, and rush it through the passage, and if you add it in with a whole bunch of other stuff, nobody knows what's going on, and that's how you can sneak through your special provision. We're opposed to this cluster. We want no bill cluster. Sure, I like We it. want one simple topic for each bill so that we, the American people, can debate it. Now, let me tell you yeah. the best part of I all of this. I spoke about this actually when I ran for governor. I did. Let me tell you the best part about all of this. All three of these bills have an enforcement provision. See, we can't trust Congress. I said to you before, they're the most anarchic institution in the land. They have no rules or rulers, right? They can do pretty much whatever they want. So we couldn't really count on them to pass a rule, a read-the-bill rule, and follow it. They would have waived it at certain provisions when it was convenient for them to do so. Sure. We couldn't have put a one-subject provision on them. They would have waived that when it was convenient to do so. Yep. So what we Which said, would be always. Right. So what we said was, for all three of these bills, Larry, if you find yourself or anybody in your audience found themselves in the dock, you're being tried, you're being cited, you're being, in some way, the enforcement mechanism of the state is coming after you, that you can show the judge the provision in the law that failed to follow whatever it was. If they didn't follow the Read the Bills Act or the One Subject of Time Act, you can show the judge that they failed to do it, and the judge can kick the case out with impunity, which means they can't bring it back up against you again. And that provision's in all three, and it gives this teeth that makes an enforceable bill. So if they want to break the rule, if they pass Read the Bills Act and, and they start violating it, that's fine. They just basically pass a piece of paper that has no that has real no effect. Yes, no effect, sure. That's good. Good. Well, I appreciate it. How, how is uh, Freedom Fest going for you so far? Oh, it's excellent. This is my That's first time here. Welcome. Glad Thanks for coming out. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. It looks as though the Democratic Party is basically eating itself, and the Republican Party has basically dissolved into a cult of personality. It seems to me that this is a perfect time for us to grow recently great. Tell me some good news to make us feel good about this third way that the Libertarian Party can, can make some of them. So, uh, what it's shaping up is that the 2020 election is going to be a, a battle of complete, competing populisms. Okay. There's going to be a Republican populism and a Democratic populism. Yep. It's going to be about which group is the real people and which group is the other that we're going to take things back from. Got it. And what we can do as a political party is look at the strategic opportunity there and present a vision that focuses not on people and populism, not on who's good and who's bad, but respects all people, regardless of their views, having equal human dignity. Respects all people, that. regardless of where they live, Mutual having respect. equal human dignity. And instead of focusing on things like who's good and who's bad, who's wrong and who's right, we do things like this. Mm -hmm. This button doesn't ask you do you agree with all of libertarianism? It doesn't ask you if you believe in self-ownership or the non-aggression principle. It doesn't ask you to even vote. It asks you if you want your children to be bankrupt. 
you want your grandchildren to be bankrupt, if you want to continue to allow these politicians from the two old parties to spend us into oblivion, this gets agreement, this gets votes, and it's focused on a policy, not on people. But what about the concept that if we're going to have this movement happen, right? Don't we, don't humans want an enemy, a bad guy? They go, see, those guys are bad. We got to beat those guys up, right? We have to stop those guys. Don't humans need it? Isn't that why right now you find Democrats, Republicans fighting so hard when they often don't even have a policy? So, yes, people want to unify and work together. That is a that is a, a standard part of human nature. And what populists do is they unify people through fear. They throw you into the foxhole. They tell you there are bullets coming, and then you are forced together by the crisis. Yep. What we have an opportunity to do is speak to a, a higher level of enemy that we're working together against, which are the structural problems that are killing our country. It is the national debt, which is a threat to our national security. It is the wars overseas. It is the fact that the current administration and likely a Democratic nominee want to put taxes on the American people through tariffs and make everything cost more to feed your family. We can unite against the politicians that would implement those policies without getting into the mud of calling names and devaluing other human beings. There's nobody who's irredeemable as a person, but there are certain ideas that are so bad and harmful that what we unite against are those ideas and those policies. But how in the world does someone who sees that pen, who says, wow, $22 trillion is a lot, how does the individual say that equals me not feeding my family? which they basically become numb to debt over the past at least 30 years, if not more. How does someone go, oh, yeah, that means me not being my family, versus someone saying, oh no, I don't like the other, I gotta stop, I'm in a foxhole. I can't care about the, the debt, because to your point, I'm in a foxhole right now, the bullets are coming. I'll worry about debt later. You need to find the people for whom they do realize what it is. You know, the data points we have are in 1992, roughly 19% of the country thought that was so important that they would step outside of the two-party system, mm -hmm. they would step away from this personality fight and say, I want a candidate who's going to deal with this problem because it's the most important to me. And that sent such a strong signal that it led to a former governor of Arkansas suddenly balancing budgets and running surpluses, not because he learned economics, but because he wanted to be reelected. We need to get above the, the mud that they're sitting in and find these issues that are unifying and identify those groups, have them go to you know 22trillion.org, sign a petition, sign up to get our information, let us make that position in the news, right. make it part of the debate. Right. And then we can build a coalition on these issues that are going to be ignored by both of the old party candidates. Neither old party candidate is going to support free trade. Neither of them is going to want to talk about the national debt. Right. Neither of them are going to want to actually bring our kids home from overseas and stop getting involved in these foreign wars. Neither of them are going to want to open up the immigration system. Neither of them are going to want to end the racist war on drugs. We can build a coalition on these issues that can win a presidential election. So if we're looking at that, I know it would be inappropriate to ask you if you support any individual candidate. So when I ask that question, I'm going to ask a more generic question about our presidential candidate in 2020. 
are you, in theory, against bringing anyone from another old party into our party uh, to maybe run as president or vice president? Does it matter to you? How do you, how do you think, in theory, when it comes to running that 2020 candidate, what would be a good idea or a bad idea? So one of the problems that I have with the migration issue in our country in the debate is that people who immigrated here to a better place then want to close the door on the people who came behind them. Sure. Everybody came to the Libertarian Party from another place. Okay. And it is not right or ethical to say that those of us who are already here should close that door to the people who will be coming in. So as chairman, I am going to continue to recruit anyone who wants a freer society, who shares our values on you know a number of issues, maybe sure. not all of them, sure. and encourage them to leave their old parties that are going nowhere, leave those broken systems, yep. come into a party where we agree on some things, be part of the process, seek the nomination. I don't give out the nomination. That's gonna be up to the delegates in Austin, and I trust them implicitly. They've trusted me to be chairman. I trust them to make the right decision on president. I trust them to know the difference between a carpetbagger and somebody who's decided that they have a new political Sure. Party. I think on this we agree 100%. I am all about bringing as many people into this movement as possible. I don't care where you come from. I've been on the record, left, right, middle, whatever. If you want to come to our party and you want to talk to us about how we can make a, a better world, how we can make a better country, I'm in, let's talk. And for those people who are more hardcore, which often get mad at me when I say that, I was telling the same thing. You hardcore people, if you're watching now, understand something. You have two choices. Choice number one, stay mad at me. You can do that. Fight me all you want. That's okay. Or there's the, option, the second option. As guys like me and obviously guys like you too, Nick, bring more people into this movement, be the elder statesman, be the mentor, be the teacher, be the, 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 the resource to show these people the right way. That's what I want you to be. Nick, are you on the side, same side as me or no? I am absolutely on the same side as you in that. I, I, one of the things that I want to make sure we do, I want the Libertarian Party to be Libertarian. Yep. And there are some people who come into the party that carry some baggage that is not Libertarian. We all do. We have to ask them to leave that baggage behind. Yes. And if they keep trying to bring the baggage in, we have to be just like the flight attendant and say, you know, there's a certain amount of carry-on space. <laughs> yes. You can't bring that one in. Yes. But it's always about the baggage. It's never about the traveler. Agreed. We want everybody in, but if you have too much baggage, you should maybe take a train or a Greyhound bus instead. Maybe you can't fit on our super fast jet. Maybe that's not right for you. Well, you have a super cool jet. It's true. It's true. It's the LB jet. It's so cool, it's invisible. That's why you can't see it. It's like one of It is, yes. And it, it costs nothing also. That's why you can't see it. No one can use it. But, but, cool. but that's the, that's, you know, we have to make the party a welcoming and comfortable space. Sure. But we have to make it welcoming and comfortable for people who share our values. And if people don't want to share the values, that doesn't mean they're bad people, but there are other opportunities for them. And that's one of the things, you know, as we go into the 2020 cycle, right? I got criticized for saying that people who aren't supporting the impeachment of the president right about now are unlikely to vote for us. And a lot of people said, well, I don't support it, but I'm going to vote for you. That's great. Those are our base, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to vote for the libertarian because they love libertarians. But the people who feel like they're winning with a candidate who's going to be in the election are not likely targets for our message. It's unlikely to bear fruit. It's like Guy Kawasaki says about evangelism. 
you ignore the atheists who have determined that they don't want your product, and you go for the agnostics. You talk to them about, you know, hey, there's a better option than picking between these two bozos. You don't want that. You want something better for you and your kids and your country. So there's something that we disagree on, and that is lots of candidates. Okay. Right? I know you've talked often about having a lot of candidates. I've been the opposite of this. I've been like, no, 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 I want a few candidates. Can you talk about your view on, on having lots of candidates? Sure. When we have lots of candidates, we have more strategic options. We have the ability to target races and have our targeted races go farther because they get the cover from a lot of candidates running. We have more opportunities to be lucky. If a candidate is in the race, then they're able to win if their opponent drops dead. Right. If they're not in the race, they can't win. You don't play, you don't win. Right. It's a bad slogan for the lottery, it's a good slogan for us. The other piece about it is there's a signaling effect. If we only stock a certain number of candidates, we look like a smaller company. We look like we're not able to do that marketing. Mm -hmm. So we need to do it, and you know, it's an experiment. Right now in 2019, we have a goal of recruiting over 200 candidates to run for local office with a goal of winning 70 new elected libertarians before the end of the year. And everyone's gonna be able to look when we go to Austin in 2020 and see whether or not that worked, right. whether it didn't work. I believe in results, and if I don't get results on my projects, I cop to it. I tell the delegates, this didn't work the way I thought right. it would. That's what we should expect in our leaders, is responsibility and no, accountability. I agree. I agree. And not everybody's going to share the vision, and that's okay. The reason why I've always been against a lot of candidates is I thought, no matter what, as a business guy, I think I need infrastructure. I think our, your, your point, we're projecting that we're not a big party. I think we are in a big party, right? We, we aren't. I don't want to project big party. I want to project smart party. I want to project elite party, right? That's my vision, right? I want to project elite party, special party. And again, me being a military guy, being a business guy, if I'm going to build the military out and I can't field a large army, I'm going to field an, an elite special force that will only fight where I think it can win, right? That's the Marine in me. And that's why I'm about less candidates with more support, right? For every one Marine in the field, there's often up to six or seven people in the back supporting that one Marine. And that's what I want, right? I want I want it where I've got one guy running and seven, one Marine fighting and I got seven people supporting that Marine so that Marine can win its battle or at least do well and be effective and get others to go. It's one of the reasons why when I ran in New York, um, I was basically the, the one big guy running. And from that, we see many more people now running within New York from that, right? right. That, that, that's my vision that makes any sense. It's why I like the less candidates more people supporting versus lots of candidates. With what I saw when I ran, when we had more candidates, I saw people actually being upset with me saying that I was taking away their resources. Um, and I felt a bit, when people left my candidacy, my, my party to, I'm sorry, my party, my, um, my campaign to run their own campaigns, I lost resources. So I think it was a, it was a push and pull that I felt wasn't helpful in the party. That's, that's my view. Right, and th that's a totally valid view as a candidate. You have an interest in yes. wanting to have the most resources available to you. Of course. The Marines have been known to want to have a lot of resources dedicated to them. But the overall goal that I have is to d displace and or destroy one or both of the two old parties. And the Marines can't win a land war in Asia. True. They can't go head to head against a larger fighting force. True. Absolutely. We need to field up an army. We yep. need to have the Marines and the army at the same time. And you can't do that without running more The candidates. army is not as cool as the Marine Corps. We keep going. 
You can't do that without enough candidates. You can't. And the idea that the resources are static is completely backwards. I there actually is agree a, with that. There, I you're right. there is money and organization yes. and people out there. And the idea that the candidates should look to the party to build their infrastructure or give them oh, the funds no. is not how political parties work. Agreed 100%. Parties are about team. Individual campaigns yep. are each their own thing. We support them all. But we don't give it to you because what you built was yours. And I, did I tell you ever how to run your campaign for nope. Governor of New York? Nope. I didn't because that was something you built. Yep. Did you tell me how to run for Mayor of Phoenix? I tried to. I'm not kidding. I didn't. And if I had listened to you, I probably would have done better than 10%. <laughs> yeah. But it's, um, we both built our own organizations. Sure. And that's what it has to be because every candidate is different. Different candidates are gonna have different issues that they wanna focus on, and the whole party doesn't agree on a whole lot. Sure. I think you'd agree on that. Absolutely. So it's best for candidates to bring in the people that align with their individual vision while keeping the party a big tent that supports a lot of these different views as long as we don't cross lines of dehumanizing people or sure. you know, engaging in anti-libertarian stuff. Good. Well, I'm, I'm glad you came by. Thank you so much. I know you got stuff to do. We're all running booths trying to shake hands and kiss babies here. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much, Larry. Have a good one. All right. Bye, guys. Hey, guys. Larry Sharp at Freedom Fest yet again live. I have a gentleman here with Feed Me. Is Feed that me. right? It's Patrick here uh, who runs Feed Me. It's an idea, if I get it right, that now someone can kind of use this app so they can kind of farm out from the other apps what they actually want. Can you explain that? Yeah, so uh, one thing that people are dealing with right now is from the creator side, when they publish on Facebook, yeah. none of their audience sees them, but the same thing's happening on the other side. People followed uh, content producers and public figures yeah. and are no longer getting, seeing that. So what Feedme does is actually solves that problem by you log into Feedme, you connect up your Facebook account or your Twitter account or yep. your YouTube account, and then we actually go out to all the accounts that you follow directly and in real time bring in posts into a new feed that you have total control. So I'm going through Feedme to get that stuff. Exactly. It's kind so, of a hub. We call it a super feed. It's kind of a new type of app. And uh, So what about the idea that, I mean, we have this issue already, right, where people are kind of putting themselves in their own bubbles, yeah. right? So if I have my Feedme app, Aren't I kind of making more of a bubble? How am I going to get that other side, right? How many, if I'm if I'm on the right, how do I get the left? On the left, how do I get the right? If I'm, yeah. I'm all about authoritarianism, how do I get the freedom, right? Yeah. How do I get both of those? Yeah. So Feedme is is not a conservative or a liberal app. Uh, it is it is for everyone who okay. actually wants to have control over what they see and consume. Right. So I don't think it's gonna make anything worse. Okay. Uh, but Feedme can actually be a place where where you, you can you can see what what other people are following and there's and it's uh, you'll absolutely should you be able to You talked to me earlier about a thing if, you, if I remember right called yep. a mini feed. Yep. I get it right? The yep. mini feed. The idea where I could if, if I'm one side get most of what I want, but I could create a secondary feed yep. that allows me to have the other side or other ideas yep. of views. Explain absolutely. That. Yeah, so mini feeds are smaller feeds. You still have all the same level of control. You can bring in any source and control it perfectly. But you can you can create many of these and maybe have it on a topic, maybe have it on a sort of you know specific group of sources. So, for example, you might want to you're following a local sports team. Right. You can actually bring in some of the Twitter accounts from the, the players, uh, the Facebook page from the official official team, 
you know, local sports blog, and actually have a, like the perfect uh, Washington Redskins mini feed. And then you can actually share. You had to use Washington Redskins. <laughs> That's the one you had to use. Somehow, in Nevada, some, you somehow used Washington it Redskins. My, somehow okay, it came yes. into my brain. New York Giants is better. Yeah, Go ahead. New, yes. New York Go ahead. Giants. Yes. Um, so you can, you create the perfect New York Giants mini feed. There we go. Now we're rocking. Then you actually can share it with others. Mm -hmm. So you spend a lot of time knowing exactly what what needs to be followed, but your friend might not. They're interested, but they don't really know have the time to, to really spend. They can so, follow along. So we can share it almost like Spotify. Exactly. So right. Spotify playlist. Right. You curate con you know music. You're not creating it. Right. In the same way, a mini feed curates. Uh, news and information yes. and then you can share it with others and they can follow you know my concern and it's always been the same thing is I'm trying to get people to not stay within their own bubble which is why I like the idea of the mini feed right because if, if I'm actually if I can if I'm concerned about what I watch and I watch whatever I want mm -hmm. if I don't have that mini feed my worry is I stay in that bubble and I never hear the other side yeah right the worry about not hearing the other side is now the other side becomes the other yeah and now they're not human they're not real yeah. they're the bad guy and I'm trying yeah. to Trying to change that. You know, you know, one way this actually helps that also is what happens on social media right now is if you don't like and love and share uh, the content, even if you follow a, a source that you don't necessarily agree with, right? They'll stop showing it to you pretty quickly. Got it. Right. With with Feed Me, you can actually say, "I'm not going to like or I'm not going to." I'm not going to share it, but I want to see it. Got so it. you can tell Phoebe, I want to see this uh, this often, or I want to see it this often. I want to see it only when it's really viral. Or Got it. Um, and so it actually so it allows you to, to kind of keep your, well, I don't want to like this guy's stuff, yeah. but I still want to But I want to see it. I love yeah. it. That's awesome. Cool. Good. So how does someone check out Feed Me? So go to feedme.app. Um, feedme.app. There it is. We're rolling out an invite-only preview, so it's launching this month. Nice. Go there to be one of the first people to use the app. Love it. There we go, guys. Feed me. Thank you. Have a good one.